you remember these games? The lob. Barton, the finish! Morris, driving the right side, fadeaway jumper for the win! Morris! Take a step back in time to relive those moments in Cyclone history. Close, and it's picked off! Intercepted by Spears! I am so proud to be your brother! This is the Wide Right Recycle Podcast. Welcome back to week six of the Wide Right Recycle Podcast. I'm Jake Brendan. Today, we got one guy that you kind of know. Austin Keeney was on here for the Cyhawk Rewatch. How are you doing, Austin? Good. I'm uh, I'm proud to be the first repeat guest of the pod, I gotta say. It is a very high honor. I love talking about games that I went to in person, too. This particular one I had not watched in full since uh, since I was there in person. Just as painful or probably a little less. Honestly, it was a little less painful. I, I wasn't sure how it would, how I'd feel about it until I watched through it. It hurt a little less, probably because we're in the middle of a quarantine and it's April. That's fair. And also joining me, as always, Sean D. Sean is also here. How are you doing? I'm good, but after watching this game, I feel a little worse. This is uh, this is a tough pill to swallow, and actually, weirdly enough, one of my favorite games that I've ever been to, regardless of outcome, just because like how entertaining it was. So excited to get into it. This is probably the most entertaining loss possible, because one, it wasn't in the postseason, so it didn't it didn't end a season. Everything like until the last thirty seconds or so was just so insanely back and forth. I had it noted that the most impressive plays of the game weren't anything offense related but anytime a team got a stop like that was just like monumental because there was not a lot of stops going around so getting into the game this was the last season before i want to say iowa state got put on the map they were in the tournament the year before and they were pretty good this year but they were still just 19 and 8 9 and 5 in the big 12 they were unranked ku was number 6 23 and 4 coming into the game and 11 and 3 in the big 12 Iowa State had won 22 in a row at Hilton. They were undefeated the year before, and they had not yet lost this year. And Bill Self, they noted this on the broadcast, was at win number 499. So he was going for the 500 career milestone. And on top of all that, if there is any more stakes needed than just Kansas coming to town ranked sixth, Iowa State lost the first matchup in Allen Fieldhouse on the Ben McElmore Phantom 3 in overtime. So it's not just a rivalry game, and it's not just Big Monday. It's also a huge redemption game. I'm trying to think back to 2013 and what I thought going into this game, but I don't really have too much recollection of it. You two were there, so you probably have a little better memory. What were your thoughts on if we were going to win? What were your expectations going into the game? Well, you have to remember, I maybe this was the first televised Big Monday game Iowa State had had in a really long time. So yeah, there's was... a lot bigger there's a lot bigger build up than normal, I think. And I think that really mattered too. I remember so I was a I was a junior in high school for this game. 
and uh, I remember my dad had season tickets, and I was just that whole weekend beforehand. I just couldn't have been more excited because you know the gold out, big Monday, Kansas coming in town number six. But Austin, you were there as a student, so what was that kind of perspective like? I know you're just kind of talking off air about a story that you just told us. It was uh, kind of an incredible atmosphere. I was a freshman, and I don't remember how I ended up getting as good a seats as I did. I was about five or six rows up behind one of the baskets in the student section. But uh, what I remember most about getting ready to go to this game is just, hey, I'm a freshman. I've been to a couple of, you know, a few games of, at Hilton at this point, but I'd never really experienced like that electric Hilton atmosphere. We definitely got that in this game. Um this was back in the days where students could just cluster as many as you could fit on the steps before they'd let you in as possible. It was also really, really cold this day, so they had space heaters out to try and keep it warm, I guess, for students while they were waiting to get in. Um, I'm not sure if somebody had a hat stolen from them or if they brought it, you know, just as an ironic thing, but there was a Kansas hat that got passed around and held up to the space heater until it caught on fire, and... <laughs> got passed around a little bit and I don't remember them having space eaters out for students again. That I do not put that past the Iowa state student section at all. <laughs> yeah, this was like, uh, this was just an electric atmosphere for students. I, you could tell there were a lot of people that had been going to games for years and never experienced like, like, like Sean said, this was Big Monday, ESPN. Everybody's going to be watching this this game. Yeah, Big Monday became so regular, specifically in the next year. But thinking back to, like, I can't even um, remember, like, what this was like before the game with all the hype building up. But it makes sense that Iowa State, they beat Kansas the year before. The gold, the gold out automatically is just like plus 10 in terms of excitement. Um, Iowa State was still somewhat in the race um, for the Big 12 title. They were two games back of Kansas coming into the game with, I think, three to go. So it wasn't exactly likely for them to get to the Big 12 um, title, but they still had somewhat of a chance. And somehow, even though they were in contention for the Big 12 title, they were still in the bubble. We have to remember Iowa State was only a 10 seed this year. So they were still like a win against Kansas pretty much solidifies your NCAA tournament resume. But yeah, I that, think that that's going to come that's going to come up again later in one yeah. of our segments for sure. So I think without further ado, we should get into the game itself. I don't even know where to start with the beginning of the game because it just got off to such a fast start. Kevin Young, I don't even remember him from Kansas. He hit a jumper. And then Clyburn had a deep three. Iowa State got a stop, but then Corey Lucius drove down and put his like shoulder into Elijah Johnson, and they called a foul on Johnson. And Bill Self got teed up two minutes into the game. They said it was the earliest technical of, of his career. And that just set the tone for what the game was going to be like. We'll talk about it more later, but the officiating in this game was terrible both ways. And Bill Self was on them the entire time. Hoiberg was even on them at points. So by the time the under-16 hit, it was 14-7 to after Elijah Johnson hit a three and then Lucius and Niang hit back-to-back threes. Corey Lu- or, uh, Bill Self called a timeout. Again, 14-7 at the under-16. And I don't think... 
I'm pretty sure I had basketball practice and I got out of practice early so I could um, catch the mo- most of the first half. But I don't think I remember watching the first like five minutes of this game. So in terms of atmosphere and what it was like there, what was the first five minutes like in person? Because rewatching it on TV, it was just insane. It's like Austin could probably back me up on this. It's, it's probably the angriest crowd that I have ever been a part of. In, of almost any sporting event, just like throughout the entire game. Yeah, I maybe it's showing my age a little bit, but honestly, a lot of what happened in this game until the very end was a blur, and that's kind of how it looked rewatching the game. It just it went by so fast because it was so up and down and played at just such a ridiculous tempo the whole way. Yeah, noting back yeah. to the first the first Clyburn three, we always talk about like how. Hoyball and how Matt Thomas and Naz Long had a green light all the time. I think they had a little bit more of a leash because Clyburn pulled up like three feet back, five seconds into the shot clock and drained it. Like this team was just the pinnacle of Hoyball. I'll pull up the stats, but I'm pretty sure this was the season where they broke the NCAA three point record. But yeah, they made 346 threes this year, first in the country. Gosh. Yeah, and they. Obviously, the attempts were probably the highest also. And that was just the one yep. thing I noted early on. They they were just, anytime they had an inch of space, they were taking a three. They didn't wait, and it, I mean, it ended up working for the majority of the game. Kind of shot themselves in the foot in OT, but um, we'll move on unless you guys have anything else to talk about from just the, the start of the game. So after the under-16, KU went on a quick 7-0 run. Uh, Tristan Relaford had a three and some and Elijah Johnson had a couple layups just like that. It was 14, 14. And then the teams just traded buckets back and forth for about two minutes until the under 12. And then Relaford hit a three before Hoiberg called a timeout and Iowa state trailed 21, 17. Uh, we'll keep booking along. Tyrus McGee checked into the game for the first time at the 12 minute mark. And he came in and hit a mid range jumper. We talked about Tyrus quite a bit last week, but, We'll talk about him more later on, but he was so good today. This was just like, it was surprising how good he was, but also not surprising. Just remembering watching him back in the day, but still, when you when you watch the game and he's pulling up from where he's pulling up and when he's just, when he has that automatic green light, it's just so fun to watch. And Franchilla was all over him all night. Um, probably the funniest part of the game, Anthony Booker hit a three. I didn't know he had that in his arsenal, and that gave Iowa State a 22-21 lead. Then after that, Withy uh, and McGee traded a couple buckets to the under-8 to make it 27-25 Iowa State. So what I want to look at right now, in the first half, the score at all the, at all the media timeouts, Iowa State led at the first media timeout, KU led at the second media timeout, Iowa State at the third, and KU at the fourth. And all these were by four points or less. It's crazy how back and forth this game was. I I couldn't find the amount of lead changes at the end of the game, but at some point in the middle of the second half, France at the, there was like 16 lead changes, which I'm, frankly, I'm shocked there weren't more because this game was so back and forth. That's about like the, the first half of the first half. Do you guys have any other key plays or key moments that you guys want to point out? I just think 
Anthony Booker, you mentioned that you didn't think he had that in his arsenal. I don't think he thought he had it in his arsenal either. <laughs> um, he played a little bit more because uh, Niang and Edgem both had two fouls pretty early in the game. So they had to lean on him a little bit more. I was actually, I didn't remember him being as aggressive as he was. There was a play where he posted up and probably should have hit a layup over with. He just missed it. He he really uh, got after it. Yeah, I for the most well. part. Mm-hmm. So I was just about to say, for the most well. part, he filled in. It was, uh, it's one of those roles for him where if you don't notice he's out there, that's probably a good thing, right? Because he just did like a couple little things here and like, oh, okay, there's a rebound here, makes a three there. But when it when it comes, same with like Percy Gibson, I know he played a little bit. When you don't know that he's out there, you're like, okay, that's okay, because that means he's not screwing up. Yeah, those are those are two players that as time goes on, they're kind of just molded into one. They kind of played the same role, just if Niang or Edgem has two fouls, send them in and hope they maybe hurt someone, hope they don't hurt someone on the team, don't shoot threes pretty much. But Booker made a three in this game, which that's probably better than most games in his career. Which gave him the irrational confidence to shoot like two or three more. And even after knowing that they're not going in, I'm like, all right, that's probably still a bad shot. Yeah. yeah I don't, I don't remember him playing a whole lot in the second half after, uh, after chucking, I think three threes in the first half. Yeah. Yeah. Niang did a good job of staying out of foul trouble after picking up the early two. Edgem on the other hand, not so much, but we'll talk about that more as the, as we get there. So the last eight minutes of the half, arguably the most entertaining part. So Melvin Edgem had that block on Johnson at the rim where it was kind of like a, it was like a finger roll and Edgem blocked it up into the rim. Off of that, McGee got a wide open three in the corner. KU got a couple buckets, um, quieted the Hilton crowd. Hoiberg called a timeout. And then the... The iconic out-of-timeout, um, out-of-bounds plays. Iowa State got a couple buckets off of those. Withy got a layup, and Nadir Tharp hit his only three of the day. Going into the under-four timeout, KU led 37-36. And then the last about two, three minutes of the half was very boring. Both teams just kind of traded free throws. The refs didn't exactly swallow their whistle. It was a slow end of the half. Uh... The only thing I have of note is Nadir Tharp hit his second three, or he hit his second shot of the day with a layup with like three seconds left in the half. And the refs in Kansas got booed off the floor going into the halftime, or going into the locker room, and they led Iowa State 41-40. Iowa State shot 6 of 15 from three in the first half, which I thought was low. I didn't, I when watching the half, it seemed like they shot much better than that. But overall, it was just so back and forth. Like, this is peak Big 12 basketball. This is what, like, you want to see from two of the best teams in the conference. And it was extremely fun to watch. I don't know about you guys, but even though I knew Iowa State was going to lose, I knew that, or I, I just had fun watching this game, and I enjoyed watching it. It didn't feel like a slow death like the Michigan State game was. Like this just felt like peak hoy ball. Like this is as good as uh, this is as good of offensive flow as you can pretty much get. Yeah, one thing that we haven't that didn't quite get brought up is you know Iowa State kind of bungled the end of the first half. Uh, they got caught in a spot where 
they were kind of in no man's land where they couldn't go two for one, but there were there was going to be time left for Kansas no matter what, and turned into a turnover, which led to pretty much an uncontested layup that gave Kansas a lead going into halftime. So, you know, he said not a lot we could do there, but definitely a spot where it was, you know, you could conceivably think that was a four or five point swing if Iowa State gets a good shot. Yeah, and that's the type of shot that when the sixth ranked team is playing on the road and they get that layup at the end of the half, that can sometimes be the killer for the home team. They get that one and, last and thing this of momentum. Is a, yeah, and it's this is a perfect kind of like if you're looking at the game from afar and, and identifying a couple different plays, that's like a perfect amalgamation of what happened. Jake, I know you, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but literally any time a team got a stop, you felt like it was something so special and uh, absurd that we actually, you know, <laughs> either team quit the other team from scoring a basket. Like, that's how ridiculous and up and down this was. And so, like, that that end of half layup sort of fit exactly with the flow of the game. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have made sense if the half ended any other way. Yeah, I think yeah. the thing that bothered me the most out of that was really just no resistance on the way to the basket for Tharp. And there was a lot of plays where, you know, it made sense why this game was so high scoring because there wasn't a lot of attempt to defend the rim really on either side. No. And and even Jeff Withy, who was the arguably the best defender in the NCAA the last couple of years, well, Anthony Davis the previous year, but he had zero blocks, which was only the second game that he had had zero blocks all year, which I thought was an interesting stat. So this is a little early in the segment, but we're on the topic of topic of blocks. And one thing that has aged extremely well on the bottom, they were showing like the women's basketball scroll that night. Brittany Griner had 15 points, 15 rebounds and seven blocks in a win at Baylor. <laughs> there were a lot of like, I, I kind of noticed that too, as I was watching, there were some pretty hilarious uh, headlines down at the bottom, something about could in uh could an NFL stadium be built on the same plot where Dodger Stadium is because there wasn't an NFL team in L.A. yet? Indiana was number one in the AP poll yep. this week. Georgetown was number seven. And this was the year that Miami was, like, awesome. They were number five. Jim so, Laranaga. Yep. One thing I also noticed, Gonzaga was ranked number two for the first time in school history. And it seems like for the better part of like the last four years they've been number two the entire time so into the second half it started off pretty much just like the first half there were a lot of buckets very fast jeff withy hit a mid-range on the first possession of the second half and jeff withy only had 13 points but it seemed like he scored on every possession i don't know if you guys felt like that too but when I looked at the back box score after and saw he only had 13, I was shocked. Yeah, I mean, Iowa State just didn't have an answer at center for him. And you can look back through all the history of Hoyball and, until we get Jamil McKay. And even then, I mean, you're, you're sticking freshman Georges on one of the best players in the country at the time. And Edgem was in foul trouble. And Booker kind of tried. And so they were – they. The second half, I noticed they came out and, and Fran Fraschil called out right away that they sent a quick double at him, which they hadn't been doing in the first half. So, the yeah, the 
whole dichotomy between Withy and Iowa State attempting to play small and having George drive on him, that was really what the whole game boiled down to, is two contrasting mm-hmm. styles there, which isn't something that you see a lot in really basketball on any level at this point. And I thought that it was it was genius, too, by Fred. They talked about this a lot during the broadcast, about how they literally just they just ran spread, pick, and roll over and over and over again. To, yeah, to we the might, fact that they... We, we might get to it. I thought Fred coached an, an just incredible game. This was like a master class for him. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah. I thought Bill Self did an awesome job, too. Because there's a couple different adjustments that he made at halftime. So what Iowa State was doing when with with Withy and Josh Young or Kevin Young, they were they were just dropping that guy back to play free safety and protect the paint. And what Bill Self was doing was having someone else come up and set, his guy come up and set a screen. So then they're basically having one guy screen the primary ball handler, and meanwhile the guy in Iowa State playing drop coverage has to make a decision whether he needs to come up and help or stay back or. So it was just kind of like this chess match all game, which I thought was just fascinating. Yeah, this was pretty much any Hoiberg-Bill Self matchup from this point on is just incredible. The Like you said, it's a chess match the whole way. And Hoiberg, whenever Hoiberg brings a team to the floor, it's a mismatch. And Self is arguably one of maybe two or three guys in the conference that can always counter it and can always do it effectively. And this game, like we said, it was back and forth, but Hoiberg did coach a masterpiece and it took extremely unfortunate circumstances for them to not win. But Hoiberg did put them in the position to have a seven point lead with five minutes left and to have a five point lead in the last 30 seconds. And it just, Everything went wrong, but we still have quite a bit of the way um, to go. So there were a few buckets, but one thing I have in all caps, the Lucius Alley 3, probably the play of the year. <laughs> I knew, like, I remember that happening. I didn't know it was in this game, though. I thought it was in a different game, so it caught me by surprise, and it, <laughs> play of the year, for so sure. Why don't you, why don't you rem- remind people what that was? So I think it was Will Clyburn cut back door and was going to have an awesome alley-oop. Corey Lucius at the top of the key throws the alley-oop up to him. He misses it in the best possible way, and it goes in the hoop, swishes somehow um, for a three-pointer. I don't know how... (laughs) I don't know how he threw such a line drive type lob. And it went in without even hitting the backboard, without hitting the rim. It was, one, without a doubt, one of the top ten craziest plays I've ever seen in basketball. And I don't think I've ever seen anything like it since. Yeah, that was really a great job by Clyburn not to, like, touch the ball. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that, that takes extreme presence of mind. I didn't even think about that. That's a... Uh, that takes a lot of willpower to Will Will Clyburn takes a lot of Will Clyburn power to lay off of that. Uh, all right, quarantine's getting to everyone. <laughs> so after the Lucius Alley three, they missed a terrible moving screen on Jeff Withy 
That would have been his fourth foul of the day. It led to an Elijah Johnson layup. I think that is one of probably the top five plays of the game. Because if that, with the, as we already talked about, with he went on to kind of destroy Iowa State for the better part of the second half, if he's forced to sit out for six or seven minutes there because of his fourth foul, Iowa State is in a much better position. And I took a picture of the TV broadcast when watching last night. And this is around the 16-minute mark. Oh, sorry, that would that only would have been with his third. But at the 16-minute mark, Elijah Johnson, Kevin Young each had three fouls. Relaford, Tharp, and Withy all had two. That foul trouble and the fact that it didn't lead to anything is just infuriating. The fact that... So Withy fouled out in overtime, but the fact that none of their other best players got into foul trouble the rest of the game... I don't know if it speaks to the ref, if it speaks to just the nature of the second half, but just by common odds, one of those guys would have had to foul out. Elijah Johnson plays with three fouls the rest of the game, starting at the 16:45 mark in the second half. Well, if you want to talk about guys almost fouling out, we're, we'll get into that as well, because that played a pretty big role in the game too. Yeah, without a doubt. So, after the 16-minute mark, um, Jeff Withy got called for a charge where Niang was probably like two or three years too late. And Self was rightfully extremely pissed off. Chris Babb went down and hit a three. Self was getting in the ref's ear. And then they call a block on Niang as Perry Ellis drives in, which is a total makeup call. I don't even really think Niang touched him. So after those free throws, it was 57-56. Kansas got the ball back. Relaford hit a three. Tyrus McGee hit a three. And then Self called a timeout. 71-60. And then right after the timeout, Iowa State got a stop. And McGee hit another three, which was his fourth of the day. Going down, I don't know if this was the exact next possession, but around that second McGee three, KU dribbled the ball off of Iowa State's foot or something. They had an out-of-bounds play, and Lucius was playing like defensive back and forced the ball out of bounds for a turnover going into the under-12 mark. And at that point, Hilton was rocking. It kind of is unfortunate that that had to happen at the media timeout. That play of the day, like that play there, was probably the best defensive play of the day because he just, Lucius pinned Johnson up against the sideline and forced Withy to throw it up to Johnson, and he just couldn't jump high enough to get it, and it went out of bounds. Do you guys know what play I'm talking about? Yeah, and it, again, it, this is it's so funny about this game that we can pick out a couple different defensive plays and be like, "Wow, like what a what a great play!" Even though over the course of the entire game, it was just they're so few and far in between. It seemed just like a pickup game at the Y, where if someone drives past you, you're like, ah, "Someone else will get him." It, there was just, <laughs> I don't want to say like a lack of effort because I think Iowa State lacked effort all season on the defensive end, but there was just almost this like, uh, if we don't get a stop here, we'll just get a three on the other end. There was that type of attitude, and I think Fred embraced it, and he used it to the best of their ability because most teams, when they play against Kansas, if they have the attitude of, oh, we can just let them drive by and we'll be fine. They're more than likely going to get blown out, not lead Kansas with 
five minutes left. And, and and the thing is, right? I had a I had a note here after the first half. I said shootout favors Iowa State. Like this is the kind of game that you want you want Kansas to get into because we just have too much firepower. Yeah. And it took a 39 point performance to beat yep. that. So we're gonna kind of skip all the way down to around the five minute mark. So Iowa State is leading 72-68, and Jeff Withy picks up his fourth foul. As soon as that happens, Elijah Johnson got a layup. So it's 72-70. Niang threw a perfect backdoor pass, backdoor bounce pass to Tyrus McGee, who went up and around for a layup. Iowa State got a stop. Chris Babb hit two free throws, and then Corey Lucius hit a three on the next possession. So at this point, it's 79-72. Iowa State's leading around five minutes left. And Chris Babb has a wide-open three in the corner. No one within three feet of him. And he hits it off the rim. If Babb makes that three there, game is over. Ten-point lead. Let's let's pause there for a second. That... I can't even tell you. I know I'm I'm jumping on you a little bit because because uh, this comes down and gets a layup, but that three that three to me ends the game if he makes that. That is that's the dagger. I I don't think Kansas comes back from ten down with four what was it four I think four thirty six mark. I don't think they come back from ten down at the under four media time. No. Do you guys agree or disagree? I know it was an up and down game, but. I agree just because of what immediately follows because yep. once he missed that, it took the perfect Kansas bounce and Elijah Johnson got a layup in transition with like within like five seconds. So that's a five point yep. swing right there. So it goes from 79 or from 82, 72 to 79, 74. If bad makes that layup or if bad makes that three, I think the game is over. So that, I don't even want to go on after that. And then to soften the blow after the Johnson layup, all Iowa State needs to do, get a solid offensive possession, get a bucket, get the crowd back into it. And George takes a three, totally ill-advised, like three seconds into the shot clock, misses it, takes another Kansas bounce, and with he gets a layup in transition, in transition, so right there, it's 79-76 at the under four mark. Pretty much worst case scenario when you're up seven at home against the number six team in the country. They had the entire crowd on their feet with momentum, but one missed three turned into pretty much an eight-point swing. From that point on, Iowa State actually responded pretty well. So they were up three, and after... The media timeout, Tyrus McGee hit a big three. KU hit a couple free throws. And then Elijah Johnson got an awful and one call. He was barely touched. He got the layup. He made the free throw. George goes down, misses a hook shot. Iowa State got a stop. And at this point, Iowa State is leading by two. So all they have to do is pretty much make one or two shots and the game's a little safer. But McGee missed another runner. Kansas goes down. Travis Relaford misses a layup. He die. 
or someone on Kansas dives for the loose ball with Chris Babb, and they call a loose ball foul on Babb when both guys were just going for the ball. That's another. That's another horrible, horrible call. Yeah. It's it, Jake. I don't remember if I sent anything to you last night about that one. You but did. I. Yeah. That that was a. A horrible, horrible call. And in the moment, it is still not acceptable, and it's inexcusable. No. At this point, there's a little under two minutes left in the game. And they called a foul on a guy going for a loose ball, doing the exact same thing as the KU guy. They both just dove for the ball, and they called a foul on Bab. KU made the free throws. So at this point... It is 82 or 84-82 Iowa State leads, and Niang hits a dagger. Niang hit an awesome three. Hilton is electric at this point. They're up five, and that should have been the game. KU comes down on the other end, and they do the chalk play that won them the national title in 2008. Elijah Johnson goes to the top of the key, got a wide-open three. He made it. Iowa State inbounds it to Will Clyburn. And Clyburn is running in transition, and Jeff Withy pretty much pulls on the back of his jersey. But they called the foul on Kevin Young instead. Yeah. And the significance of that play, that would have been Withy's fifth foul, and he would have been disqualified. You go ahead, Austin. Yep, so so when that happens, Kevin Young puts his hands up, and he's like, hey, you know, that was on me, call that on me, call that on me, even though Withy was clearly the first guy to make contact. Have you ever seen that work? Because basketball players will do this all the time where they'll try and protect their teammates in foul trouble by, you know, trying to claim a foul for them if they're close by. Have you ever, other than in that moment, seen that work? Because I don't have any idea how they could determine that Young was the guy who who reached in, rewatching that play. No. And, and by the way, for, for the curious listeners, it's Mark Whitehead, Burt Smith, and Tom O'Neill. Go ahead and send them your angry fan, fan letters or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no no Hollywood Higgins here tonight. No, I would have killed for Higgins in this game. We would have won. Yeah, Hollywood would have made the right play, or right call. So that the, goes even, on. Sorry, I, I just, even, even with the, I, I'm just, I'm not over this. Withy starts walking back to the bench. And Bill Self, and, and Musburger sees this right away, and he's like, Bill Self is telling Withy to get back on the floor. And, and Fran's kind of laughing a little bit. But he's like, well, that's kind of strange that they missed that. But Withy didn't even have any ID. He walks over to the bench, and Self's like, hey, hey, like, go back in there. They, they call, they're they not going to call the foul on you. Like, go, just go back out there. Completely changes the rest of the game. Yeah, we even got Brent and Fran are joking about, well, I guess Jeff Withy's playing an NBA game tonight and getting six. Like, there, there wasn't as I don't think there was near as much outrage about that at the moment than there should have been. That is so. I'm looking at a different an article right now about the formal apology that was issued. There were two plays that they had to formally apologize for, and this was the first. I wonder what the second is. Yeah, yeah I wonder. I'd... We'll we'll probably talk about that on a different episode. But <laughs> Clyburn hits the two free throws. Iowa State is leading 89-85 at this point. Elijah Johnson, so they run the same exact play that just got Johnson a three. But this time, Iowa State steps up, and they don't allow the wide-open three at the top of the key. So Johnson passes it over to Relaford, 
Relaford doesn't have a shot, so he passes it back to Johnson. And Johnson's standing about five feet past the three-point line, off balance, just chucks one up, and it goes in. I I can't even begin to put into words how infuriating this entire performance was by Elijah Johnson. He was playing on zero sliders while everyone else was playing on regular. The shots that he hit in this game... He had 19 points at the 2 minute and 45 mark of the second half, and he finished with 39. So, (laughs) Corey Lucius gets fouled, hits one free throw, and they had a 22 straight free throw streak, which I didn't know could be possible for Iowa State. But Lucius missed the first, he made the second. I think we should probably talk about how ridiculous a 22 straight free throw streak is for an Iowa State team, where we're used to them missing 22 out of 25. So after Lucius made that, there's a little over 13 seconds left, I want to say. Iowa State's leading 90 to 88. Elijah Johnson drives in. George Niang stands outside the painted arc for probably three or four minutes stands with his arms straight up and Johnson tumbles into him, throws up the layup, doesn't go in. The refs make no call, no block, no charge. The one thing you cannot do in that situation is make no call. Johnson gets the rebound while lying on the ground and they call a reach on Niang on the ground. This is one of the most infamous plays in Iowa state history. This is the second play on that apology letter. It was on it was on all sports networks the next day. Did Iowa State get jobbed? I remember it specifically on PTI. This is like what everyone remembers the game for, so we should probably talk about it for quite a while. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter if he, they call a block there because that means Iowa State has more time to draw up a play going down the other end. That's what bothers me so much. It's not that it's the fact that there wasn't a call at all. Obviously, if they call block, like that sucks and that's wrong. But at least you save those couple seconds that they can draw up something. Like we'll get there, but Lucius just chucks up some garbage three that bricks. But Fred's gonna have something ready to go if there's you know three more seconds left on the clock at least. Yeah, I never even thought about that. Keeney, what was it like in the student section with that call? quiet um i'm kidding it, it was uh it was unbelievable because everybody was just like staring up at the jumbotron waiting to see what would happen and until they got a replay the thing is george did reach in on the ground but so clearly the charge was missed in the first place so obviously you've you've got to call that one way or another and charge is the right call jo- you know george reached in but very clearly was this just a, a complete screw up by the refs who I, I think they just kind of lost sight of what was going on for a minute here. There's a really fun element of the broadcast where you can see like Eric Heft and John Walters calling the game and Heft just is like throwing yeah. his arms up exasperated. I um, can just I can hear it on the radio. Folks Heft's were really, voice. really angry. I was I was sitting under the basket where the play happened. And I don't remember, like, I wasn't instinctively looking at George's feet. So I was like, 
what what the hell just happened? You know, I, I would have assumed maybe, OK, there's a block, you know, George wasn't set or maybe he wasn't in the circle. Um, it didn't dawn on me until after I saw the replay that they called the foul on the floor after the fact. To this, like, I think in the. Yeah, you just you just saw everybody stop and heard a whistle. So you're like, oh, God, I guess they called a block. But yeah, uh, no, that's not what happened at all. And you and I will say, I think people were so shocked, right? Elijah Johnson Johnson still has to make two free throws to tie the game. And we've seen Hilton in multiple spots before absolutely blow up at the chance to scream at someone who's on the line with a chance to tie or win the game. And in this moment, you expect the same exact thing, but I think that there's kind of the shock factor that you that I noticed. You know, I was there too, but going back and rewatching and remind myself of of what happened, people were kind of just stunned. Right? It's not that loud. He just kind of gets to the line, gets the ball real quick, and shoots it. And then everyone's like, "Well, wait, he could still miss this." And like, there's still a game going on, but I think the crowd is just kind of standing around, looking at each other, like, "What is going on?" Yeah, uh, there was a timeout called in between the first and second free throw that I think kind of yep. had everybody, you know, first off, they're shell-shocked, and now they're like, okay, let's let's watch the play again on the Jumbotron. Let's see what's going on here. So, uh, actually, sneaky, really smart timeout call by Bill Self just to kind of try and get everybody to sit and think about what happened a little bit longer. I think it was Bill Self that called that timeout, right? Um. I, I, I'm watching it right now. I think it's, it's Fred. Yeah, I think Fred's oh, trying to ice him, and it kind of backfires on him a little bit. Yeah, I think it, it allowed what happened to sink in a little bit more. And yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. The crowd just wasn't as into it at that point. They were they were pro- so did ESPN you, shows a montage of us just blowing close games like three separate times during the year that they could have easily won. And you're like, at, at this point in time, even at Hilton, there's kind of this thought of oh, God just whatever can go wrong is going to go wrong in yeah. in the moment it's one of those times where it's the it's the antithesis of the Oklahoma State game we talked about earlier with Naz long shot once that ball went in you knew that Iowa State was going to win this game as soon as they didn't call this and Elijah Johnson makes both free throws you know that Kansas is going to win this game yeah without a doubt you can just tell that the atmosphere in overtime is extremely different they're when they tipped the ball in overtime, it felt like Iowa State was down 15. The the energy was just sucked out of the crowd because frankly the crowd should have been on the floor at that point. They shouldn't have been in the stands watching an overtime game. So I don't. It makes sense why the crowd was shell shocked, but man, it uh. It's baffling. Still watching that play, I don't know how there was no call. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. It, it, like as soon as we got as soon as we got into overtime, it really felt like the game was over. Uh, we didn't we didn't have a chance going into that. It was a bunch of no, diva it, refs. Well, I, I really wanted to pay attention to how overtime went when we came back, and uh, Jake, I'm sure you'll keep recapping it, but like. We traded buckets to start overtime, and then it's just like we completely shut down from there. It, it, it was over. Like, we just ran out of gas. Yeah, so I getting into OT, actually before that, Corey Lucius 
I would say like four and a half seconds left. Lucius ran down, chucked up a super deep three. It was actually somewhat close, but after that, they went into OT. KU got a bucket on the first possession. Iowa State got one on the next. But then Kansas went on. I don't have the numbers written down, but something like an 8-0 run, maybe a 10-0 run, to get the lead um, pretty high. Iowa State was taking early threes in the shot clock, and they just weren't falling. Kansas was stupid hot. But then with about a minute and a half left, Iowa State made a bit of a run, got it to within four. And then after Clyburn hit a couple free throws to make it a four-point game, Iowa State had a perfect defensive possession. They blocked Johnson. I think it was Johnson. They blocked him at the rim. The ball got back out to pretty close, pretty darn near close to half court with about three seconds left. And then they threw it to Johnson, who launched a hierarchy through with one second left on the shot clock to make it. And that was the game right there. Yeah. The, the third, like, the third dumb shot that Johnson hit all day. Like, super sneaky, smart play by Johnson because that ball got out to the top, and then I don't think uh, Tharp for Kansas realized that the shot clock didn't reset, but Johnson's running out there like, hey, get me the ball, get me the ball, and he's throwing it up as soon as he got it. Yeah, that, that's a gr- that's a great point. Even Musburger and Fran are just going, well, if it's your night, if it's your night. He had, he had that night. Iowa State returned the favor with Deontay Burton in 2017, but it was just that type of night where any shot you were taking was falling. No matter if it was fair or if it wasn't fair, it he made huge shots. And even if they were off balance and even if they were highly contested, he made them. And after that three, Iowa State didn't score anymore. Johnson dunked it with three seconds left um, in transition. Got booed off the... St- got booed off the court um self appeared to apologize to hoiberg saying uh, my guy's an idiot i don't he shouldn't have done that but kansas walked out of hilton with a 108 to 96 victory known as the elijah johnson game yeah there's for good reason he had 39 there's th- points there's one more thing that happened after the game that i think needs to be brought up now yep yep talk about I, it i consider this part of the game recap where our humble fan decided he wanted oh. to have a problem with Bill Self heading back to the tunnel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was either uh, Bergstrom or Jacobson, one of those two. I can't remember who it was, but just got in Bill Self's face. There's a really funny picture of it online, and that oh. kind of is, kind of sparked the, the Iowa State-Kansas hate even more so, I think, because I think Kansas fans weren't very pleased about that. And Iowa State fans, of course, were like, well, your guy was kind of acting like a dick for Duncan anyways, and people had a right to be upset. But obviously, you have that state trooper that's guarding self, kind of stepping in to get in the way. And uh, again, whoever it was has got his finger in self's face. It's, yeah, it's, it's not a great look. Good thing they're not a booster, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't, uh, and honestly, uh, from the student section perspective, everybody was pissed. Everybody was filing out. I didn't yeah. even know that happened until I got back to my dorm room. It made in the in the context of this game, of any other game that you could look at over the last ten years, basketball game wise, that's the one game where someone is absolutely going to do something like that. It was such a monumental game. 
at that point. Because if Iowa State wins this game, that has the chance to kind of be the beating Michigan next year to spark that type of runs. Get Because this was the first game with them really on the map. Like you said, it was the first big Monday game. That Michigan game was nationally televised, top 10 team, Iowa State beat them. This had the potential to be that. So there was that there was that aspect on top of the rivalry, on top of just the stakes. Everyone and, just hates Kansas. And blowing the game at Allen Fieldhouse, too. Because this yep. was... We, we played two overtime games against Kansas where we held the lead in the final 30 seconds and lost both times. Like, that's... But I don't... If you're a, a statistics major or something like that or you know probability pretty well maybe you could figure out what the odds of that actually happening are but of course it's iowa state so yeah naturally we've lost both of those it's the anti-oklahoma state in 2014 so we spent a lot of time on the game we're gonna do our normal segments just but because we went so far in depth in the game we're gonna kind of glance over them more so but before we do that we want to give a thanks to a stas bar and grill and even if Big 12 officiating lets you down, Astaz will never lets you down with their delicious tacos. Trying to get creative with it every week, but... I like it. I like it. Quarantine does some tough things to you, and there's no better way to cheer you up than Astaz Tacos, our beloved sponsor. Um, get down to College Town and eat some tacos and um, drink some beers or eat whatever you want there because they have pretty much everything. Once again, thanks to Astaz Bar and Grill. And moving into the segments, I mean, pretty much everyone's answer has already been out there, but I think probably just for clarification purposes, we want to go over them. And for the first one, the biggest sequence, I think that Sean and I will probably have similar ones, but I'm curious to see what Austin has. I'm guessing this is going to be the same too, but pretty much everything that happened through the end of regulation after Withy's phantom fifth foul which I did see a replay on the broadcast too. Kevin Young never even made contact with Corey Lucius and still somehow was able to get credit for the foul. But pretty much everything that happened from that point, from, uh, you know, Lucius missing a free throw and the play, the blarge, I think is a good way to to uh, to call it. So that, that was my biggest sequence. Sean? Yep, Jake knows uh, what I'm going to say, but... I, because, okay, backstory time. So Austin, I don't know if you know this or not, but I last on the podcast last week, I had discussed creating a drinking game and I decided to come up with one for this game. And, and I put down a couple different things about what, you know, Musburger was saying or, or for Schiller or whatever, like every time Tyrus makes a three, take a drink type of thing. Um, and so what I did was I played this game and then I was snapping Jake and Ryan throughout to give them updates on what happened. And of course things escalated. And by the end of the game, I had, uh, would just say a couple drinks. I had, I had had a few. And, um, so I was sending them snap videos with some pretty horrible commentary throughout, but all that is to say my biggest sequence was bad missing that wide open three with about four and a half minutes left. Elijah Johnson comes out, gets a layup. George takes a quick three with about two seconds in the shot clock. Withy gets a layup, all of a sudden it's 79-76, and the clones are kind of on their heels. Yep, I had the same one. You could make an argument for pretty much any sequence down the last four minutes, but I, I went with 
this one, just because as we talked about earlier, if Bab makes that three, a 10-point deficit's a lot harder than a five-point deficit with that crowd. And also, if Bab hits that three, like Hilton is on like nuclear nuclear level at that point. Because after a Bab three, that is following two different Tyrus McGee threes in the back door from Niang. So there's already been quite a few awesome plays in a Chris Babb three to top that off. Um, I think would have been the dagger. So for what's aging the best, I already talked about one of my answers. The other gold rules. It looks so, it looks so good on TV. Do you not agree, Austin? I, I actually, so that was more of a personal one for what's he's the worst, uh, are the gold unis, just because I was forever scarred every single time we wore gold after this. I don't remember a time where we wore gold and actually won a big game. And that could be just oversight, but that's that's what I remember about my time in school. It's like, man, why are we bringing out the stupid golds? Okay, let me clarify. The gold uniform's terrible, the gold crowd awesome. Yeah, the gold out was cool, for sure, but... Every time I saw us wearing gold unis and warm-ups, I was like, oh, man, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, earlier earlier in the year, uh, we played at Oklahoma State and lost on a, on a Marcus Smart, kind of like layup with a few seconds left. Gold unis. And these gold unis specifically look terrible. The stripes, we, we already touched on it last week. The stripes are just so bad. How about Lucius in the, like, XXL shorts? Down to his ankles. He looks like he, he looks like he just got done watching the Fab Five documentary and was like, "Oh, this is what they were doing." So, yeah, he like, like he, he was late to uniform day, so we just had to get whatever was left. <laughs> yeah, Corey, we only have an XL for use. That okay? He's like, "All right, that's fine." He looks like a man in a trench co- or two men in a trench coat. He didn't play like it though. No, he was actually he was, really uh, really good in this game too. He's a baller. Yeah, it was the classic Lucius game where on offense, you know, he was typically good, but God, he had some horrible turnovers. Yep. What age is the best for you, Sean? Uh, Chris Babb's defense. I thought that he was absolutely fantastic. So he guarded Ben McLemore most of the night, and I think held him to single digits, I believe. But... This is I'm gonna I'm gonna hop on the the worst coaching move right now just because it relates. Bab not guarding Elijah Johnson more in this game is an absolute complete misfire by Fred. Yep. In Completely. overtime. I had an I had a note I think on here about that actually, and I think I noted it's like Bab is finally guarding. Oh yeah, this is in this is in overtime. I said Bab on Johnson now. Too little, too late. That was in overtime. So they they pulled up. First off, Bab did a tremendous job guarding Macklemore. But they pulled up a stat where Macklemore is averaging 22 on 60% from three at home. But he was averaging like 10 points a game on 30% on the road. So I think if Hoiberg does switch to Bab on Johnson like halfway through the second, Macklemore's not going to kill the kill Iowa State like Johnson did. No, and it was just a it was just in the moment. I'm sure it was really hard to see because it didn't quite matter what anyone was doing. Anyways, I didn't think that 
anyone play particularly bad defense on him. It just it was just his night. Yeah. Keeney, what aged well for you? Uh, uh, the Big 12 refs. So bear with me here because specifically the stigma around Big 12 officiating. So I feel like we kind of hit our peak around this time. And I wanted to look because the Big 12 refs Twitter account was created in February 2013, which is exactly when this game happened. So sort of making jokes at the expense of Big 12 refs or the Big 12 kind of screwing up in really big spots, I'd say age the best out of this game. You already talked about what aged poorly for you, Austin. What about you, Sean? Um, Iowa State has a Powerade school. You guys noticed that? I didn't. No, I didn't. Yeah. Yep, Powerade on the bench. Not anymore. I remember. Big time G school. Yep, I remember when we became a, because Powerade's a Coke brand. So I remember when Coke was our like our official sponsor, and then I think we switched to Pepsi after I graduated. But no, I, I, I forgot about that. That's a good one. Uh, I had a couple more things that aged really poorly. So Iowa State's three-point shooting, because now we can't make threes anymore. Oh, boy, do I have a it's stat just, for you. Yeah, it's gotten tragic. And one more quick one was just Elijah Johnson's season because it never, it, it really fell apart from here and it ended in the Sweet 16. I remember specifically their game against Michigan. He missed a big free throw. Trey Burke hit like a 35-foot three-pointer to tie up the game and he really kind of torpedoed their season when they really had a shot at making a run at the title. He, That's a good one too because he's probably flipping burgers somewhere right now. I have no idea where he is. I didn't even look because in my head it's funnier that way. <laughs> so I was going to get into this for the player of the game later. So Tyrus McGee had 22 points, 6 of 10 shooting from 3. To put that in perspective, Iowa State in the 2019-20 season had 11 games with 6 or fewer 3s. Tyrus McGee outshot this year's Iowa State team, 11 times. That makes me feel so much better. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> makes me yeah, feel confident Jake. heading into next season, too, without our best shooter on the roster anymore. Yeah, too. It is what aged the worst. We're not going to sugarcoat it. Do you guys Do you guys want to get in the Hoy ball stuff now? I've got some stuff, speaking of three-point shooting. One more thing. I had okay. what aged the worst. I can't believe no one else had this. The only correct answer, Perry Ellis. This was, I think, his sixth freshman season. Yeah, I, I actually had him as aging the best because he looks the exact same, huh? Yeah. Checkmate. Perry Ellis aged the worst in high school. I get, yeah, I guess it's whatever perspective <laughs> you look from it. <laughs> yeah, so we can get into Hoy Ball, Sean, if you want to take us on that. All right, so we, in my head, this has always been, I don't know if you guys, okay, Agree or disagree, this is peak Hoy Ball team right here. If you have to think of one team that personifies Hoy Ball, is this the one for you guys or is it not? Yes. And are you going to pull up the Ken Palm stats that you did last week? Sort of. I, I have their offensive rating numbers here. So here we go. This They were, just for reference, they were first in the country in three-point makes. So they made 346, and they took 924 attempts. So they were 42nd in, in, uh, in percentage-wise, by the way. So they weren't the most efficient. But their offensive rating was 111.7, so that was good for 16th in the country. And their defensive rating was a flat 100, which was good for 171st. 
So what I did was I went back and looked at from 11-12, so the year prior, looking at Royce's year all the way up to the 15-16 season, just kind of looked at offensive rating, defensive rating, and then three-point makes and attempts. So let's, we'll run through it real quick. So Royce's year, their offensive rating was 45th. Their defensive rating was 159th. And they made 293s and they shot 786. I just went over this year's team. The following year, so Georgia's sophomore year, their offensive rating was good for 30th. And their defensive rating was 117th. They made 301 threes on 840 attempts. The following year, uh, offensive rating was good for 28th, defensive rating 109th, 263 made threes, 726 attempts. And then the following year, 15-16 year, offensive rating was good for 24th, and their defensive rating was 191st. Uh, They made 293 threes uh, out of 758 attempts. Now, the high, any guesses so far about who you think the highest scoring team was in terms of points per game? Because that's another thing I had. So 11-12, 12-13, 13-14, 14-15, 15-16. Which team do we think scored the most points? I'm going to say this team. Or wait, most points per game or most points? Per game. Per game. This, this team. Austin? Are you talking about Iowa State teams? Yes. Okay, yeah. I mean... Yeah, this team. That's actually not true. So the highest scoring team of the teams that I'm looking at here was the following year. So they averaged 83 points per game. This this year's team that we're talking about right now only averaged 79.4. So that was actually hmm. third because the 15-16 team averaged 81 points a game. Hmm. So I thought that that was interesting because... In my head, that just seemed to be like, all right, this is the one team that's like horrible on defense and elite on offense, and it, it kind of does back that up. But they're all so, so very similar in terms of just if you're looking at the raw numbers. Obviously, the three they've made and took way more threes, but in, in terms of rating and rankings, it's very, very close. When you just think of Hoyball, I think of this team. Because you think... When you watch this game, they're not playing defense. And the next year when you add DeAndre Kane with senior year Melvin Edgem and Dustin Hogue, those guys are out there to, they're out there to defend. There wasn't I mean, outside of Edgem, there wasn't really anyone on this team that you're like or I guess Chris Babb. There wasn't really anyone that's like, I'm gonna go out there and lock him down and I'm gonna I'm gonna make those plays. And I think I don't know if this team was missing defensive talent. I think they were missing Dustin Hogue. They were missing that type of body, missing that type of player. Because I don't think the 2013 and 2014 teams were much different outside of the fact that Iowa State didn't have bull, that bulldog, that uh, that gritty player. Yeah, it's it's they're missing. It's not defensive talent they're missing. It's defensive effort. Yep, without a doubt. So this is another segment we can probably skim over. The biggest what if, I think it's probably pretty obvious. What if the refs made the right call? Does Iowa State hit both free throws? Do they turn it over? Does Elijah Johnson pull another crazy three? Something like that. But I think for the most part, if Iowa State, if they get the call, they win this game. And who knows if their NCAA tournament seating has changed. 
if they don't run into Aaron Kraft in the second round. I think there's so many different rabbit holes you could go down with it. What did you two have? I had that, but I have more of the big picture idea. Like he just brought up, you know, we're not a 10 seed if we win this game and we don't run into Ohio State in the second round of the tournament. Yep, that's, yeah. I, I didn't have a bigger picture what if for this game, actually, just because this kind of operates as its own standalone thing, but Austin is Austin's correct. I went back last night and looked at the official seed list, and Iowa State was actually the third 10 seed in the seed list. So I don't even know if this win bumps them up to the nine line, but it might be a good thing that it wouldn't because they could have moved up to the number one 10 seed and not had to face Ohio State. They could have faced a worse two seed. So I think it's just fascinating to go down that rabbit hole. And actually, losing or beating Oklahoma in the first round of the Big 12 tournament might have been, this is totally off topic, might have been the worst thing to happen that year because Iowa State and Oklahoma were back-to-back in terms of seeding. So if Iowa State would have lost, they probably would have been the fourth 10 seed and Oklahoma would have been the third, and maybe Iowa State wouldn't have played Ohio State. That's a really good what if. I mean, that's a that is a really interesting tidbit. That was the one thing I noticed because going into that game, the the committee was probably thinking whoever wins this matchup is is going here and whoever loses it is going there. I think they were 37th and 38th or 38th and 39th something along those lines. So, player of the game, I think it's pretty unanimous across the board that it was Elijah Johnson. But who did you guys have for Iowa State? Because I think there's probably two players that you can make a case for. It's Tyrus McGee, without a doubt, for me, personally. I agree. Sean, do you yep. make three for three? Yeah, I, I had Tyrus. And I will say, if we're going, if you're looking at who I thought played the worst, I thought George played pretty horribly, to be honest. Some of his shot selections were just atrocious, even though he had possibly the biggest three of the game. Yeah, rough beat for George. He was 3-for-17 in this game, and 0-of-8 from two-point range. Gosh. I knew they uh, they showed something at one point that he was 2-of-11. I didn't know it got as bad as 3-of-17. Yeah, and all three of his makes were threes. Unbelievable for George that he didn't make like a, one of his weird baby hook layups. I think Withy gave him some serious problems down low. He was 6-of-6 six six from the line, though, which... Brought his total from 9 points on 3 of 17 to 15, which does help a little bit in the box score. So we're going to kind of trek through these final 4 or 5 segments, just because we're running a little longer than usual. The Donnie Jack Award, I think that the play that I had is probably the Donnie Jack Award for the entire season. I want to see what you guys had, though. Um, it was a, It was a miss, or both of them were misses, but my just kind of big stones moment was Anthony Booker shooting two threes after making the first one. <laughs> Ultimate irrational confidence. Too much confidence. So yeah, I got that first one. So sure. Why not? Here's two more coming right up. Sean, what'd you have? I had George's three to go up five with about 35 seconds left. Hmm. I thought that should have been the game winner. Assuming that we just, you know, make some free throws and, Nothing crazy happens, but we all know that's not what happened. 
I would have had that if they won. But for what's remembered on down the road, I had the Lucius Alley 3. He can tell his kids and his grandkids that he threw an alley-oop and it went in as a three-pointer. I don't think many basketball players get to say that. That's fair. We don't even need to go over this segment. The Hollywood Award for the worst call. The apology letter speaks for itself. The That's kind of the whole point of the podcast of, yeah. this, of this episode is like the, the thing could be just called the Hollywood Award. Yeah, this is this is the Hollywood episode. And he wasn't even involved, which is kind of shocking, but he probably would have made the right call. That's all right. Uh, I have some, we, I have some should... really good announcing lines that I want to make sure we get to. I've got one, too. So I want to hear what yours are, Austin, if you're that excited. This segment is the best announcer line this was, I think, the first time we had Musburger in a game for this era, if yeah, I remember Brent, correctly. Brent Musburger was yep. on fire in this game. This was, I think, if I remember right, too, because he almost me too himself in the football national championship game with A.J. McCarron's wife. And uh, somebody brought a poster of her to the game, which Musburger signed with, uh, she's a 10. <laughs> Brent Musburger, the <laughs> autograph. He was so yeah, he was just all over the place. Like he might be the MVP of this whole game, if not for Elijah Johnson. But he uh at one point called Jeff Withy the most valuable player in the entire country. Little did we know. Um he also said on Tyrus McGee, maybe the best six man in the conference. A couple of great Frashilla lines. He said uh well, he brought up the Niang played high school ball with Nerlens Noel, which I feel like this was kind of peak cyclone drink. bingo era. Yeah. Um Fran also said George really knows how to get himself fouled, which I thought was kind of funny. And um, talking about Hickory Park. So Brent says, uh, boy, we had some good barbecue today, right, at Hickory? And this was like peak Hickory Park era, too. Sean, did you have any that didn't match those? Um, Fran saying nice is in the DNA of the people in Ames, which was just kind of fun to hear. And then Musburger... Like boldly predicting, like like he had some ridiculous parlay that he was trying to sell to someone. He's like, prediction: Big Monday, we'll be back in Ames next year. <laughs> Uncle Brent too. He also uh, at one point said of Hoiberg, "I know he loves being in Ames, but let me tell you, some NBA teams are going to come calling." Yeah, that was a good one too. Ouch! That could be the hottest take. I think Fran, did you guys catch this? I think Fran was like, he said some really good things about Georgia's, and he's like, you got to keep an eye on this guy, like like type of thing that he was like really hinting that Georgia was going to be someone to keep an eye on. Obviously, hindsight 2020, but. Fran is so smart when it comes to all that. He, yeah. he was ahead of the curve on Buddy. He was way ahead of the curve on Tyrese. He's just the big he's the ultimate big 12 basketball fanatic and he's he's awesome yeah i think he honestly he might be the best like game analyst in the country that does college basketball i'd agree oh, he's certainly he's certainly better than billis and those guys fran if you're listening friend of the program hop on sometime and we could rewatch your favorite iowa state game i would love to talk to fran it'd be amazing so my best announcer line was another one from Fran, and he said, 
Iowa State has not defended well in Big 12 play. They just like to outscore teams. <laughs> and I don't think there's ever been one sentence that could outline Hoy ball better than that one line right there. So Sean already talked about his worst coaching decision, and that was not switching Chris Babb on to Elijah Johnson earlier. I had that also, but I also had another one. Hoiberg not drawing up an actual play for out of bounds after the free throw that tied it up with five seconds left. You would think with Hoiberg's intellect and out of bounds capabilities, he would be able to draw something up a little better. But I do understand that there was only five seconds left and there's only so much you can do. Yeah, I definitely don't want to bash on Fred because, like I said, I thought this was like a master class of coaching for him. But um, going going into overtime with the timeout, I mean, even, you know, I know we didn't have a lot of time and we didn't really get a chance to drop a play, but Lucius did catch the ball on, on the run, and I think he could have had a little more urgency and maybe gotten to the rim and gotten fouled. Um, just one more, I guess, a couple, a couple other things that stood out. Boo Boo Palo was pretty much a complete zero in this game. And I don't know why he played. And you could probably say that about his whole career. Yeah, they really tried a little bit. You know, they called back to back plays for George to try and get with his fifth foul before the reach in. And it just didn't work. But maybe they could have gone after that a little harder. But like I said, I thought Fred coached an awesome game. So I definitely don't want to be bashing him for for anything in particular. Yeah, so. I think for the most part this game was entirely well coached by both coaches. So that segment's more just nitpicking as far as that goes, because this was probably a top 10 game for Fred. And I mean, Bill self has probably about 600 career victories at this point. So it's hard to say this is one of his best, but it, it, it was up there for one of his best coach games, winning in Hilton Coliseum, with a team breaking a school record for three-pointers is not easy. I just remembered it, one other thing, so I'm backtracking a little bit. Something that aged poorly was Paul Rhodes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Paul and Alan Lazard sitting together watching the game when Lazard was still a recruit. Alan Lazard's haircut did not age well. He looks like how my hair feels right now in day 41 of quarantine. Yeah, no kidding. I just had I had that written down. I want I wanted to make sure we squeeze that in. Yeah, I I I had that written down too, and I totally forgot to talk about it. So you could probably have a couple hot takes when it comes to Alan Lazard and Paul Rhodes, but mine was the hottest take I wish that I could tell myself and tell everyone on February 25th of 2013. I wish I could tell myself that one day I would actually like Bell Bill Self. Because I, I don't know when it happened or why it happened, but I just, I really do like Bill Self as a coach, as as a competitor. I just respect him more than I think any other coach in the Big 12. And that, that changed out of nowhere because I used to hate him, especially in this game. I could not stand him, but as time went on, I, I really do like Self as a coach. The silence is me thinking about how to address that and if I agree with you or not. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, screw, screw Bill Self. Sorry. Not sorry. I like I obviously I respect him because he's like a one of the greatest college coaches of all time. But like also. Yeah, 
His program's uh, yeah. dirty as hell, and he's going to be coaching in the NBA within the next two years. Yeah. So, so yeah. what I think, what I think it is, is like I compare him to the absolute like minimum. Like when Kirk Ferentz walks onto the field, there's just hate in my heart. Like I cannot stand that man. I can respect what he's done, and I can respect him as a person, but I hate Kirk Ferentz. I hate Fran McCaffrey. I hated Bob Stoops. I hate Tom Herman. But like when Self walks on the court, I just I don't get that sense of hate. I don't know why, but I think maybe it is just the the things he said about Iowa State as a program over the last few years. And I think I've grown to not hate Kansas fans as much as other fans. I don't know why that is. I just maybe it's because we've started to beat them more. But as far as a program goes. I know that they're going to get busted from the FBI soon, but I I don't hate Self as much as I used to. No, we, we all have one. I get it. So, like, the way you feel about Bill Self is the way I feel about Bob Huggins in West Virginia. Like, I just, I like West Virginia, and I'm not afraid to admit it. Like I said, we, we've, Jake, all got, we've all got one. Yeah, Jake, listen, the Kansas fans can't hear you. You have to shout up to their high horse. They're, all, they're all sitting above us. Oh, I'm not, I'm not saying I love KU fans, but... When I name off like my worst fan bases, they appear after Texas Tech does. Ah, fair. I've got a, a retroactive right. take that I'll put out there. Sorry, Sean, I'll, I cut you off, but no, uh, you're good. No, no, keep going. I, I wish I would have told myself in the moment that uh, this was Fred's best team and their best chance of going on a, a Final Four run. Oh, and that's, that's how I feel like torture. that. I feel like that's about as spicy as I can get, but everybody was healthy. They had Ohio State beat, and one thing yep. that we haven't really done is pull that upset in the tournament or prove that we could, you know, when we go up against a one or a two seed, that we can take them down. And this team was absolutely rolling into the NCAA tournament. Like they beat the hell out of Notre Dame in the first round and had Ohio State on the ropes. Like, honestly, I know they were a 10 but I feel like they could have made a run at the Final Four. We actually and did I talk think... about this last week. You go remind ahead, Remind me, Jake, Jake and Austin, remind me, who did Ohio State play Arizona after they beat us? Who was that next team? I'm actually looking that up now. Yeah. I don't know who they played in the Sweet 16, but I know that they played Wichita State at some point. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah, they played Wichita State in the Elite Eight and lost. So I think that they beat, I, I swear it was Arizona. And Arizona, oh gosh, this is going to bug me. Arizona had a really high, they had a lottery pick that year. Uh, drafted by the T-Wolves, maybe. Oh, they did. Gosh. They beat Arizona and then lost to Wichita State in the Elite Eight. So we could have had a potential 9-8, uh, or sorry, 9-10 Elite Eight matchup. And I know that Wichita State team beat Ohio State and went out of the Final Four and went undefeated the next year. But, I mean, tell me I'm wrong for saying we could have beaten them. You Do you want to hear Wichita State's path to the Final Four? Or I guess yeah, it's, it's incredible. I have it in front of me. But, they yeah, go ahead. Gonzaga, which oftentimes is the worst one seed ever because they're Gonzaga and they choke all the time. I guess they beat Pittsburgh in the 8-9 matchup. In the Sweet 16, they beat 13-seed LaSalle. So they didn't exactly go on this barn burner run beating top-ranked teams. They beat 
Pittsburgh, Gonzaga, and LaSalle before eventually beating Ohio State. Yeah, they really had Louisville on the ropes, too, and Louisville went on to win the whole thing. But that's where, like, if I'm just – my hottest take that I wish I would have had in the moment is, hey, this is – well, and I wouldn't have had any way of knowing, but, hey, this is Fred's best team and his best shot at going to a Final Four. Yeah, I think that's that's scorching, but you could probably make the argument for it. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring things down and say this is not this is not gonna be the most soul crushing loss of the season that also includes suspect officiating with an apology letter included. Oh my gosh. Imagine <laughs> seriously, imagine this game ending and you getting on Twitter and being like, Hey, guess what? It get worse. This, it gets yeah. worse. There's something coming. There's something coming and it's gonna be worse. Oh gosh, that is painful. Here, I'll read. Here, I'll just, I'll just read this since we're on the topic. This is why we're doing this podcast. The Big 12 Conference acknowledges that officiating errors were made at the end of regulation during last night's Kansas at Iowa State men's basketball game. The plays have been reviewed and appropriate measures will be taken by the coordinator of men's basketball officials to adjust the number of future assignments for the two officials involved in conjunction with conference policies. Now, notice they said two officials and not three. So whoever it was, they and they never specified who. Because I think all three of them weren't allowed back, but only two were punished. So I thought that was interesting. Imagine if after this game, Hoiberg went on a on a Paul Rhodes rant. Because I I can imagine that in the press conference, Hoiberg was just like, eh, "Kansas beat us. Can't complain about officiating it. It happens. It yeah. happens." He was laid into the handshake line, though, because uh, he did have some words for the officials. That is true. Like and four or five players have made, yeah, four or five players have made their way to Bill Self before Fred did. Mark Whitehead, Burt Smith, Tom O'Neill. <laughs> they will be receiving hate mail from all the Wide Right and Recycle Podcast listeners next week. <laughs> Let's just hope Number none of them podcast. own a, like a garage door business. Number, yeah. number, one, number one Iowa State podcast in France. That is true. Thanks to the Buzzsprout statistics, we do have a French listener. We hope that overseas, you're, if you're listening to this episode, you're staying safe. As far as the Wide Right Recycle podcast goes, we say goodbye and bon voyage. I like to play Juicy Wiggle.